You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. You're listening to Smashed from the Ensemblist, the only podcast that shows you Broadway from the inside out. I'm Aaron Albano. And I'm Mo Brady. Welcome back, listeners, to our tongue-in-cheek recap of what is television's most detailed depiction of the theater industry. And yes, for at least four more episodes, we're still talking (laughs) about Smash, the NBC series that chronicled the creation of not one, but two Broadway musicals and all of the drama that ensued along the way. We've been going back episode by episode to see how this supposed love letter to Broadway has held up over the last decade. In each episode of our podcast, we're looking to find the answers to these three questions. Did it represent Broadway then? Does it represent Broadway now? And is it any good? So let's dive in and talk about episode 14 of season two, The Phenomenon. Aaron, give us them stats. The Phenomenon premiered on May 4th, 2013. It was written by Jordan Nardino, who last wrote episode nine of this season, The Parents, and season two showrunner Joshua Safran, who last wrote the premiere of this season on Broadway. Star Trek fans rejoice. The episode was directed by Belana Torres herself, Roxanne Dawson, who last directed episode 13 of season one, Tech. The phenomenon experienced the second highest jump in ratings in the entire series, second only to a jump early in season one. This week's viewership hit a total of 2.28 million viewers, up by 0.39 mil from the previous week. This week's episode included five featured songs, two covers, and three originals. The covers included Radiohead's High and Dry, performed by Jeremy Jordan, and Billy Joel's Vienna, serenaded by Christian Borle. We again heard an excerpt of Iconis's Broadway Here I Come, but the two full-length originals came from Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, Bombshell's At Your Feet, and hit lists The Love I Meant to Say. And what's got you so verklempt, Gabe? Sam Strickland's put-in rehearsal to replace Jimmy is in three hours, but Karen and Derek are screwing around on the couch. That is, until Jimmy breaks onto Karen's fire escape, catches the two in her apartment, and runs off. Meanwhile, Tom gets a call from his former one-night stand Kyle's phone, but instead of a booty call, it's the police, letting him know that Kyle was killed in a car accident. Eileen Rand is ready to talk about a Tony campaign, and Bombshell is the show to beat. Ivy Lynn may be nominated twice as Best Actress in Bombshell and Best Supporting Actress in Liaisons, but all that Tony talk is put on hold when the Bombshell company learns about Kyle's death, with even Ivy calling in sick to be with Derek down a Manhattan theater workshop. In a series of flashbacks, Kyle's friends remember their own favorite intimate moments with him. Julia in storyboarding hit list, Tom in a boudoir serenade, Karen in the lobby chat during Bombshell's opening, and Jimmy in brainstorming hit list ideas along the East River. Finally, with a justifiable reason to be sad, Jimmy uses a song from the show to memorialize the love he meant to say to his dear departed best friend. Mm. With Gabe and the company of hit list understandably shocked, <laughs> Garrick cancels the evening performance. <laughs> But the Hitless fans show up anyway to honor Kyle's memory, and at a seated reading at music stands for a standing-room-only house, Hitless has turned into a phenomenon destined to move uptown to Broadway, funded by Eileen's ex-husband, Jerry. And, as a parting gift, Julia gets the lights of the Lily Hayes Theatre marquee dimmed in Kyle's honor. Music. 
The phenomenon. The phenomenon. Huh. Man, Gabe is so sad in this episode. Gabe is he very is, sad. Gabe is has, forlorn in his checkerboard sweater in the corner. Oh, those, are some, those are some good top man costumes. Um, uh-huh. All right. Let's talk about what is obviously going to be our favorite thing, which is this <laughs> board of actors who are up for some award. Oh, completely. Did you pause the episode to like look intently at that board? Oh my gosh. I wish I could zoom in because I was pausing and I was like squinting trying to see the show that Katie Finner and Cheetah Rivera were on. I oh, like, the way I like, those? not only did I, did, was, was I squinting at that board, but I was like, okay, this logo looks like this logo. Which means that must mean that Audrey McDonald is in House of Flowers. And because that logo looks like what Patina Miller's in, Patina <laughs> Miller must also be in House of Flowers. Cool. I'm going to write that down. Like the, like the sleuthing that went into the scene. <laughs> Don't you wish you cared about anything in your schooling as intently as you cared about figuring out who these... <laughs> this fantasy Broadway season of 2013? Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, and, Fascinated. And, and I, cause I definitely also, not only, did you do this? Tell me if you did this. I rewound it and paused it to look at the boards over and over and over again. But I also then rewound and paused it again to like listen intently to the conversation that Eileen was having about the rest of the season. Oh yeah, because it was different shows than in the other time when she, when we talked about shows. Correct. The press rep. Correct. Okay, so, so from last episode, the season that we got was Bombshell, Liaisons, which is closed, Imitation of Life, which we talk about again in this episode, Moonstruck doesn't exist, so we don't have Moonstruck. And Lloyd Webber, which was also closing. In addition to that, we have Harold and Maude, which is a West End transfer. Roadhouse, which apparently is just bad. And we got a confirmation that Imitation of Life is closing. But then, and then in addition to that, from the board, we have The Beauty Queen that Jen Damiano's in and Victoria Clark is in. The House of Flowers, which <laughs> Patina Miller and Audra McDonald's in. We have a revival of Oliver. We have a revival of Seesaw. And then in the conversation that Tom is having with Eileen, he talks about Drood and Pippin, which I was like, hold on. That was kind of around the time when those revivals existed. It is. It's the same. And I didn't do enough homework. Oh, I did enough homework. It yes. is the same season. Oh my um, God. Drood opened, the Drood revival opened in the fall of 2012, and um, the Pippin revival opened in the spring of 2013. So, oh, so yes, both this, this all exists in our world as well as in the Smash world. Great. Okay, here's my one thing about the boards that we so lovingly... You should read, let's, let's, let's read through the boards because not everyone will have paused. <laughs> okay, great. Go ahead, you read them. Okay, so best actress is... Kate Baldwin in Seesaw, mm-hmm. Jennifer Damiano in The Beauty Queen, mm-hmm. Karen Cartwright in Hit List, Ivy Lynn in Bombshell, Audra McDonald in The House of Flowers, and Laura Osnes in Oliver. And the Best Supporting Actress board is Victoria Clark in The Beauty Queen, <laughs> Lee Conroy in Bombshell. It sounds like we're like on New York One. Doesn't it sound like we're doing nominations? Uh-huh. It's fantastic. Ivy Lynn in Liaisons, Kate Finneran in An Unknown Show, Bettina Miller in The House of Flowers, and Cheetah Rivera. Also in an unknown show, even though she was in the mystery of Edwin Drew that season. No one is meant to spend as much time looking at these as we have. Um, and yet, here we are. This is the content you signed up for, people. <laughs> this is it. But here's here's my question. Aside from Cheetah Rivera being in two shows in one season. And only being nominated for one. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Drag her. 
Karen Cartwright in the hit list. According to Daphne Rubin Vega, what's her character's name again? Agnes. Agnes, there it is. She says this is a Tony meeting. However, hit list is not on Broadway yet. So either there is no good reason she's on that board <laughs> that really isn't truly not good reason i was like either someone messed up in script or someone messed up in props in which case this is a discrepancy that cannot go unnoticed they don't know uh-huh i'm just they don't like no they're just doing their job they're just pulling photos <laughs> making up logos i mean literally uh, um okay uh. so uh who would you vote for so I'm knowing that you didn't see any of these shows. I want to know who you would vote for for best supporting actress and best actress. I mean, okay, best actress. I mean, it would probably go to Audra McDonald because it's Audra McDonald. Um, right, yeah. I would love to see a Kate Baldwin win. Do you know anything about Seesaw? I know not a thing about no. the show. No, but I, I feel no. like Kate Baldwin is finally due for like a body of work, Tony. Uh, sure. This could be like the a time. Stephanie J. Block. Yeah. Yes, I could I could deal with a K. Baldwin body of work, Tony. But to be honest, Audra will probably get it because Audra's Audra. Yeah. For Best Supporting Actress, who would you vote for? Here's where I'm going to go. This is controversial. I'm going to give Ivy Lynn the Tony Award for Best Supporting Actress sort of as like a both goes there. And then he, I'm giving Laura Osnes the Tony Award for Oliver. And let me tell you why. What? No, no, there is, there is, no. Let me tell you. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. There is no world in which Laura Osnes would be an Oliver. No. Or nominated for Best Actress, right? The only role she could be playing is, is Nancy, Nancy. Which is it, not a back, Best it, Actress role. No, that is a, that is a supporting role. So I have Period. decided that I have decided that she... Laura Osnes is playing the title role in a deconstructed version of Oliver. She's playing <laughs> Oliver Twist in Oliver. This is the only thing that can be happening. And it is so fantastic and revolutionary that she deserves the Tony Award. LOL. Laura Osnes in Diane Paulus' production of Oliver. Like, come on. I'm here. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Like, let's be honest. Some Laura Osnes love Bonnie and Clyde, Cinderella. Like, uh -huh. she deserves. There's a body of work, Tony, for you. All right. So I'm giving, I'm going Laura Osnes for, for Oliver in Oliver and Ivy Lynn as her consolation for starring in two Broadway musicals in one season. All right. Let's talk about getting the lights dimmed. Is this a true statement that it is only awarded for Broadway veterans. Um, I mean, what? Like, Broadway theater owners and Broadway, like, producers can do whatever they want. Like, but... That's the thing. Is yeah. that, like, I feel like the league says things like, Broadway lights are going to dim, mm -hmm. but they don't actually choose who gets to dim them. Oh, for sure. Because Eileen says this, it's only awarded for Broadway veterans. When Julia comes to her, Julia comes to her for like to ask if she can get the league to dim for Kyle. I mean, when I was watching it, I was like, she's right. Not because it's a rule, but I'm reading an industry editor exclusive on broadwayworld.com. So uh -oh. it has to be true. Got it. The league has consistently set a committee within the organization decides who to dim for and is just consistently designed to say who forms that committee. But when this Kara Joy David pushed, the league spokesman said it was the theater owners and to ask the theater owners. But then there's this quote from one insider. Okay. Calling it a committee is a stretch. The big three landlords decide and everyone else follows. Usually the Schuberts are the ones that are, are most against dimming, but it varies. Personal relationships matter. So really it's the theater owners. It all comes back to the theater the owners. The theater man. owners, yeah. And I mean, like, 
I get it. It's it, it like it. It's definitely an honor that would be reserved for the upper elite in our industry. Yeah, and but like, that said, it's not like a hard and fast rule that oh, it's only awarded for Broadway veterans. Because I'm like, nah, that's not it. And sometimes some theaters do dim, and others don't or like all the Jujamson theaters will dim or all yeah. the Disney theaters will dim which happened yeah. in this episode and I, and frankly like when it happened at the end of this episode I actually thought it was quite a classy move for them to dim it at Bombshell where, where it was kind of weird when it was like hey can we get the entire industry to yeah to to dim for Kyle Bishop I can guarantee like the entire industry was like who's Kyle Bishop who's Kyle Bishop <laughs> like I and so because he mattered so much to this company. Mm-hmm. I thought it was not uh, like a nice gesture and very appropriate that Bombshell dimmed for Kyle. Perhaps one of the more realistic depictions of the theater industry. Con smash, one might say. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> In terms of like sentimentality, which this episode was full of. And yes. let's be honest, the theater industry is full of as well. Mm-hmm. It felt like a realistic thing. Yes. Versus what they, what they do to sort of mark Kyle's death and this quote unquote phenomenon, which oh, is basically yeah, yeah, yeah. rip okay. off Jonathan Larson's death. Are we? Are, yeah, let's get. Let, okay, let's hit. Let's get to Kyle. Let's get to Kyle. Which I will say, when I first watched this episode, I despised this episode. In this rewatch, mm. I didn't hate it as much as I thought that I would. Yes, it still felt icky to me. Okay. Okay. How so? Go. I think if there weren't a million ways that Smash was trying to tell us the hit list was like Rent, um, it wouldn't feel like as sort of eye-rolly to me. Yeah. You know, if it wasn't taking place at basically New York Theater Workshop and didn't have mm-hmm. Kevin McCollum as a producer and sure. didn't ha- we didn't see Daphne Rubin Vega and Jesse L. Martin. Yeah. You know, but the fact that we are like constantly, th- I mean, there's rent posters in the background of Scott Nichols' office. There are, absolutely. So if it didn't like sort of like remind us that rent existed in every opportunity, maybe it would have felt like more touching to me. This felt more like. Well, because I, because, okay, because, because here's, I think this is also why it didn't bother me as much because I went into it almost consciously trying to view it outside of that parallel that they were trying to push because the first time Mm -hmm. i watched it that parallel really really bothered me and we can for 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 people who don't know what is that parallel okay so the parallel that this episode and arguably this entire season has been trying to build up to is that and we've talked about it on the show already where they're trying to draw this big parallel between hit list and its trajectory and momentum with Rent from 1997. And where it almost comes to a big, big head is they try to equate Kyle Bishop with Jonathan Larson. Mm-hmm. And that, in my initial watching of the show, as a former Rent head, and I'm coming at this with no authority on Rent. I have no stake in Rent. I've never done Rent. This is all from me being a Rent fan, as I think both of us are. Mm-hmm. When I first watched the show, I was very almost offended about this episode because it was this blatant, almost plagiarism of the situation at large. Mm -hmm. 
being used by this show. And I remember thinking when I watched it seven years ago, thinking, okay, they're doing this. I don't love it. But if at the end of the episode, there's like a in memory of Jonathan Larson or in in love, in memoriam of whatever, like some sort of mm-hmm. acknowledgement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that this is what we're doing, that could make it all better. And the fact that that didn't happen made me very upset. I mean, and, 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 and so let's, let's talk about like the, what happened in the rent history that they sort of yeah. plagiarized. Go for it. Okay. So like, so the lore goes that Rent Off Broadway at New York Theater Workshop had their last dress rehearsal before their first preview. And the morning of first preview, everyone finds out that Jonathan Larson had passed away due to an aortic aneurysm. There, the cast is understandably devastated and they are not sure how to proceed if they want to cancel the show or if they want to move on, move forward with the show. Lore suggests that the company decided to move forward with first preview, but to do it as a concert, to do it as a, as like, they're just going to sit there with stools and music stands and sing the show. And during the performance, I think it was during La Vie Boheme, where a very emotional cast starts doing the number. I think it was Daphne and Wilson who start just doing their blocking for La Vie Boheme. And it sort of propels in this very celebratory and organic way the rest of the company to start doing the show as the show and are no longer satisfied with just sitting there singing the show. And then they get to act, they get to intermission and they decide we're just going to do the rest of the show. And fueled by this news, this about the composer's untimely death, Mm -hmm. Rent sort of becomes a phenomenon and you inextricably have Jonathan Larson's passing combined with the very good show that Mm -hmm. is coming out of this downtown theater. And that's what sort of propels it forward. Yeah. To become the phenomenon that Rent was. Yes. That, I mean, and and that's understood by all, by everybody who loved Rent and who grew up with Rent. And we knew this story basically as like musical theater mythos at this point. We still Mm -hmm. do. Like, and that's, and so watching this translation of that story in this show with characters that they have not set up for us to invest in as much as we invested. Yeah, we don't know Kyle. I don't know Kyle. And there's so many, like, events in the show that hearken to that story Mm -hmm. that are not earned. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned that I had sort of forgotten about is this feeling of we can't do it at stands anymore and that the performance becomes a celebration of the dearly departed Mm -hmm. composer. Yes. And that's what Smash gets misses and is really key to sort of earning that experience Mm -hmm. right it's not like the goodbye song turns into this like beautiful goodbye to kyle bishop you know that would have been something they Mm -hmm. could have done but instead it's about jimmy and a sad song that is about jimmy being sad it's rooted in something very different Sure, the, the the transition from staged reading to performance is rooted in like his own sadness, yeah. not in celebration of Kyle. And again, like I mean, and going back to like how you how Gabe was sad, but wasn't sure why. Like, 
the whole point of Rent is that it was an ensemble piece and arguably you could believe that Jonathan Larson was close to all of these people. Mm -hmm. Jonathan mattered to all of these people and they all wanted to honor him with this performance. Arguably in this show, he cares about Jimmy, Karen, Anna, maybe. Mm -hmm. It's this blatant like attempt at this equivalency between Kyle and Jonathan Larson that I don't think is earned at all. Kyle is not set up as a Jonathan Larson-like character. Yes. Hit List is set up as a Rent-like show, but we have not had any experiences with the character of Kyle Bishop that make him Mm -hmm. on sort of that level of Jonathan that we know through this mythos. Yeah, we just saw like... The ethos of Jonathan Larson. We we have it. It's tick tick boom. Like <laughs> we already did that. <laughs> like we just we like but like we have the story of Jonathan Larson in front of us where he's not Kyle. He's not mm-hmm. Kyle at all. Well, who is Kyle? I don't know who it, Kyle is. One thing I do know is that he, like he's very young. Like he hasn't been struggling at all, and he has like. Carolee Carmelo is a mom, so I mean, can't be that bad. Yeah, and I'm just like. The idea of, like, this was going to be Jonathan Larson's huge hit after, like, years of struggling. That's part Mm -hmm. of the story. Right. And that's what's missing here. So you can't pretend like they're the same, especially if you're not going to acknowledge that, hey, we're immortalizing the actual story with our fictional story. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're just stealing that actual story and trying to layer the sentimentality onto our fictional story. And I was very upset. I want to redo. I want to redo. Yeah. Smash. Call yeah. us back to Greenpoint. We got we to refilm. <laughs> All right. To keep up to date with next week's recap, be sure to watch season two, episode 15 of Smash The Transfer. I wonder what's going to happen in that episode. (laughs) You can find Smash episodes either on the NBC app or at NBC.com. The Ensemblist was produced today by me, Mo Brady. And by me, Aaron Albano. There are two great ways you can be helping The Ensemblist right now. One is by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And the second is by becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash The Ensemblist. Please follow The Ensemblist wherever you listen to podcasts, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or at bpn.fm, the home of Broadway Podcast Network. You can also follow us on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.